Hello, everyone. Welcome to A Good Night for Our Murder, a Victorian true crime podcast. My name is Kim, and tonight we're going back to Fall River, Massachusetts, nearly 60 years before the infamous Lizzie Borden trial would take place. Before the murders of Abby and Andrew Borden, the town played host to a scandalous case involving murder and a disgraced minister. This is the story of Sarah Maria Cornell. But first, a Victorian society tip. Tonight's tip is how to picnic like a Victorian. The concept of dining outside was not new to the Victorian era, of course, but as cities grew, people of all classes saw greater value in spending time in nature. Escaping to the countryside for the day was a popular spring and summer activity, but public parks also began installing special picnic groves with tables and benches for urban dwellers as well. Now, because the Victorians had rules for nearly everything, there were plenty of household guides laying down the right way to have a picnic. We'll start with the most important part of the picnic, which is the menu planning. Much like today, sandwiches were a picnic staple. As the main course, they were meant to be very filling. Sandwiches were made with thick slices of bread, and popular filling included what we would describe as some version of chicken salad, meaning cooked chopped chicken with mayonnaise. Except they didn't stop at chicken, of course. They also used other meats, such as beef, ham, lamb, duck, or goose. Other popular combinations included sliced meats with watercress, grated cheese mixed with cream cheese or sour cream and chopped nuts, chestnuts or walnuts with cream cheese or butter, and cucumber with mint and mint butter. Cutlery was left at home, so it was important for all sandwiches to be finger food sized. And because presentation is everything, the proper thing to do was to individually wrap sandwiches in paper or cloth and tie them with a pretty ribbon or twine. It was also proper to always include dessert at a picnic. Pound cake, fruit cake, or sponge cake was most popular. Other dessert options included gingerbread, shortbread, fruit tunivers, steamed pudding, which in America was more like a really dense cake, and blancmange, which in America is more like what we call pudding, but shaped in single-serve jello molds. Cider, ginger beer, or soda water were all good beverage options, but the best choice was lemonade, where the ingredients would be carried separately and mixed on site. Now all of this needed to be packed in a proper picnic basket. The image you have in your mind of a proper picnic basket right now is exactly what I'm talking about. But in the early 1880s, insulated picnic baskets for this exact purpose were invented. They were lined with tin and boiler felt, which is what they used to insulate pipes with. The lid would be airtight and it did a pretty good job at keeping food at temperature. Also on your packing list should be obviously a blanket or otherwise camp chairs, mats, or hammocks to sit on. Folding chairs and tables came to be during this era for this exact purpose as well. As I mentioned, cutlery or tableware was not required, but many homes as well as churches, for example, started to stock wooden or cardboard plates for picnicking. If you wanted to be extra fancy about it, though, some wealthier folks would bring an entire extra or their actual dining room set, along with china dishes and flatware, out to the countryside. It wasn't uncommon to pack an entire extra wagon with furniture alone. Now, Victorians weren't out there just to eat. A properly planned picnic would include activities like music, singing, races, or playing cards. Picnics were obviously social activities, so it was often noted that proper chaperoning should be in place if young unmarried men and women were to mix. If you're interested, I'm going to post some source links with recipes and sample picnic menus to the episode blog on my website at agoodnightforamurder.com. Otherwise, I'll leave you off with this 1901 description of the proper picnic wardrobe. Be careful to dress for the entertainment after consulting the barometer and the thermometer, and after learning the geography of the objective point of the day. 
a woolen dress that is not too heavy nor yet too new or a cotton one that is not too thin, solid, easy shoes that have a friendliness for the feet because of prolonged intimacy with them, pretty but not too fine or thin stockings, a hat that has a broad brim, a large sunshade or sun umbrella, at least two fresh handkerchiefs, a jacket to wear when returning home, and a rug or traveling shawl to spread upon the ground at dinnertime are among the requisites of personal comfort and prettiness. We have a new Patreon to welcome this week. Welcome and thank you to newest member Candice. I am so glad you're here. If you would like to learn more about the Goodnight for a Murder Patreon, you can do so on my website at agoodnightforamurder.com. A Goodnight for a Murder is a true crime podcast that does cover stories including death, violence, sexual assault, and other adult themes. This episode does include mentions of suicide. Please take care while listening. This story starts with Lucretia Leffingwell. Lucretia's parents were wealthy and prominent Puritan citizens of Connecticut, where her father owned and operated several paper mills. At the age of 26, Lucretia finds herself swept up in a whirlwind romance with James Cornell, who is employed by her father at one of his paper mills. Now to Lucretia's parents, this is not a good match. Their family are members of elite society, and James is a mill worker. Despite not receiving her parents' blessing, though, Lucretia and James are married in 1796. Over the next six years, the couple would have three children together named James, Lucretia, and Sarah. The couple struggled somewhat financially and often borrowed money from Lucretia's parents. Never having approved of the union in the first place, though, Lucretia's father grew tired of his son-in-law's repeated requests for loans and eventually cut the couple off, reportedly stating that Lucretia had, quote, used up her rightful share of his fortune. Unfortunately, it sounds like the motivation for this marriage was more for financial reasons for James than that of love, and when the loans dried up, James no longer saw a reason to hang around. He apparently dropped off Lucretia and their three children with his in-laws, saying he was traveling to a nearby city to look for work, and then he fled. He's rumored to have left New England entirely and headed for Ohio, but after this, no one ever heard from him again. Lucretia's parents were not pleased. They had, after all, advised against the marriage entirely, and now here she was, alone, with three children and not a penny to her own name. Sadly, the family was further divided when the two older children, James and Lucretia, were sent to live with separate relatives. The youngest, Sarah, was only an infant at the time of their abandonment, and so she was not sent away initially like her siblings. As I mentioned, though, Lucretia's parents had not welcomed her back with open arms, and as such, she struggled financially on her own with Sarah until at the age of 11 when Sarah was sent to live with her Aunt Joanna in Norwich, Connecticut. The year is about 1814 now, and as Sarah gets older, she apprentices as a tailor. She works as a tailor for a while, but eventually she finds more suitable work in the multiple textile mills popping up all over New England. From about 1832 to 1829, Sarah moved all over the Northeast wherever she could find work. During this time, she also gained a bit of a reputation for being a shoplifter and for, quote, inappropriate acts of women. I honestly don't know if this means sex work or if she just liked talking to boys. One source I found stated that she was fired from one of her jobs after being seen leaving the mill at night with a young man. Also during this time period, she converted to Methodism, a denomination of Protestant Christianity, and tried several times to join a church. 
Much of the next part of the story centers on Sarah trying to join a church. So I'm going to take a quick sidebar to try and explain what this meant in the 1830s and why it was so important to Sarah. During this time period, America was experiencing what's now known as the Second Great Awakening. One reason that many Europeans came to America in the first place was to seek religious freedom. The late 1700s saw an increase in secularism as science and industrialization were on the rise. With this, the middle and lower classes were able to gain more independence. And in an effort to grow their congregations, the churches started to spread this idea that you could devote yourself to the Lord as well as your community. You could keep working towards having your own piece of the pie, but also form your own personal relationship with God, through the church's guidance, of course. Preachers from many denominations would travel from town to town, giving these very impassioned public sermons about why you needed to join them. If you joined a church and cultivated this relationship with God, you would be rewarded not only spiritually, but you'd be afforded the community, belonging, and support of the church as well. It's something more than just a warm, fuzzy feeling of belonging, though. At this time, your alignment with the church is going to influence everything else about your life, including where you work and where you can get housing and more. So churches would keep official records of their members, and to become a member, you needed to do things like regularly attend service and live your life in accordance to a commitment to Christ. Sarah, though, was constantly getting into trouble with the church and expelled for things like lewd behavior, fornication, and lying. In about 1829, she finds herself living in Lowell, Massachusetts, where she meets a newly assigned minister, Ephraim Kingsbury Avery. Sarah, who is hopping from job to job and church to church, meets with Reverend Avery, and at first it sounds like he's going to help her out. One source I have actually says he hired her as a housekeeper, though she only worked there for about a week because, according to the rumor mill, Avery's wife didn't like the effect Sarah was having on her husband. This is all hearsay, though, as Avery claims he never hired her to work for him at all. Either way, Sarah did work for a short stint as a housekeeper for another family, but was soon fired for stealing. She goes back to Reverend Avery and says she's lost her job and is going to have to leave town to find work again, and she wants to know if he'll provide a certificate for her to join another Methodist church wherever she winds up. By a certificate, I'm pretty sure they mean what we would probably call kind of a letter of recommendation. And Reverend Avery grants her this. He provides her the certificate for her to show to the minister in a new church after she leaves town. Sarah does not leave town, though. Instead, she finds work at another local textile mill. But it sounds like her reputation as a bad girl has preceded her, and her new boss confronts her about it. He says that if she'll confess her sins to Reverend Avery, then she can keep her job. So she reaches back out to Avery, and he's like, you again? And you can kind of understand his frustration a bit here. Whether or not she worked for him directly, he did know about her stealing from a former employer, and he chose to back her up anyway. She did say she was leaving town, and he probably figured, you know, fine, I'll give her this recommendation so she can leave and be out of my hair. And here she is now, back in trouble again. This time, though, he decides she's worn out her welcome, and he initiates a church trial against Sarah. If she's found guilty of all this lying, stealing, fornicating, she'll effectively be blacklisted from the Methodist church community. And remember, during this time, your standing in the church had an effect on everything. But she decides to skip town before the trial concludes. Shortly thereafter, the town doctor comes calling at Reverend Avery's door, asking if he knows what's happened to Sarah. He had been treating her for venereal disease, and she never paid her bill. HIPAA laws were obviously not a thing in 1829. Reverend Avery, of course, doesn't know exactly where she's gone, but a short while later, he receives a letter from a minister in Dover, New Hampshire, asking after Sarah's eligibility to join the church there. 
Avery responds that no, Sarah did not have a good standing in his congregation, and he proceeds to completely drag her in his response, saying she was guilty of fornication, theft, lying, and that he recently learned that she had a foul disease. This gets back to Sarah, of course, when she's denied permission to join the church in New Hampshire, and she launches a letter-writing campaign asking Avery for his forgiveness and for him to please give her a recommendation so she can join a church out of state. Avery ignores her letters, but then she visits him in person back in Lowell, Massachusetts, where he does sign what they call a certificate of forgiveness for her. However, a day later, he writes again to the minister in New Hampshire, revoking the signature he provided Sarah only the day before. He spins this like he had gotten new information just that morning that she had purposefully lied about something, and if he had known that information yesterday, he never would have signed that certificate for her. After this, for the next two years, Sarah bounces around New Hampshire and Massachusetts a bit more before settling in Woodstock, Connecticut for a while with her sister and brother-in-law. While there, she takes classes with the local Methodist church, but she doesn't try to officially join. In August of 1832, there's what's called a camp meeting scheduled to be held in Thompson, Connecticut. Methodist camp meetings were essentially four-day-long retreats where parishioners and clergy would gather from all over the world and engage in prayer services, singing, religious discussion, and take in sermons. Sarah plans to attend this camp meeting, as does Reverend Avery, who has since been transferred to a parish in Bristol, Rhode Island. Two months later, Sarah suspects she is pregnant. She confides in her sister and brother-in-law that she believes the father is none other than Reverend Avery. Now, Sarah wants to keep this baby, but by her, her sister, and her brother-in-law's accounts, she doesn't want to blow up the reverend's life, but she will need help. They decide the best plan is for her to move nearer to Bristol, Rhode Island, where Reverend Avery is, let him know of the circumstances, and hopefully he'll quietly offer her some sort of support. Sarah moves to Fall River, Massachusetts, just a short ferry ride away from Bristol, Rhode Island. Then, on the morning of December 21st, 1832, in the nearby town of Tiverton, Rhode Island, a farmer finds the body of a woman hanging by her neck from a pole used to build haystacks in one of his fields. The body is quickly identified as Sarah Maria Cornell. The identification is made by the Methodist minister in Fall River, then corroborated by the owner of the mill where Sarah worked, as well as the local doctor who revealed that Sarah was pregnant by a married man. The cause of death is ruled a suicide due to her despair at her circumstances. However, pretty quickly, evidence comes to light that this may not be a suicide we're dealing with, but a murder. There are bruises on Sarah's body that are consistent with possibly an attempt at an abortion, meaning perhaps she had suffered internal bleeding or was struck from the outside. It was noted that the rope found around her neck was not tied with a knot that would tighten itself with tension, rather it was just a rope placed there. And Unequivocally, the most interesting piece of evidence is a note from Sarah left at her home that said, If I should be missing, inquire of the Reverend Mr. Avery of Bristol. He will know where I am. Dated December 20th and signed S.M. Cornell. Upon further questioning, Sarah's doctor confirmed that Sarah had confided in him that Reverend Avery was her baby's father. Also amongst her possessions was an unsigned letter arranging a meeting with her for that evening of December 20th, the night before she was found dead. Now, Sarah had been buried quickly after her death, but since had been exhumed for a complete autopsy after allegations of murder came to light. She was reburied days later on Christmas Eve. The next day, upwards of 100 residents of Fall River, outraged on Sarah's behalf, chartered a ferry to travel across the river to seek out Reverend Avery in Bristol with the intention of enacting some vigilante justice. 
They surround the Reverend's home, but unsurprisingly, he won't come out. The Reverend tries to send out a friend to speak on his behalf, but it does little to placate the crowd, and they stay there all day until the ferry signals its return to Fall River, and then the crowd departs. An inquest is held in Bristol where two justices of the peace determine that there is not enough evidence to charge Avery. Fall River, however, is not having it, and their deputy sheriff secures a warrant for Avery's arrest from a Rhode Island Superior Court. When they attempt to serve the warrant, they learn that Avery has fled. A few weeks later, though, on January 20th, 1833, Avery is tracked to a friend's home in New Hampshire where he has grown a beard and has taken to wearing green-tinted spectacles, presumably to conceal his eyes. He explains that he feared for his life after the incident with the mob. Avery is extradited back to Rhode Island, where he was indicted for murder and pled not guilty. His trial began on May 6, 1833. Now, there was a lot riding on this trial for both sides, and the case quickly became national news. Methodism was still fairly new, and more established groups such as Protestants had become increasingly concerned about its encroachment on their space. This trial gave them a reason to strike out against Methodism, so they threw in their support behind Sarah. The industrialist movement and its supporters were constantly under fire for promoting women working outside the home. Now, their new factories relied on this, so they had a vested interest in Sarah's case as well. The Methodists, obviously, were well aware they needed to do anything that they could to avoid a scandal. They ended up hiring six defense lawyers to defend Avery. The trial lasted 27 days, during which the prosecution put forth the following version of events. Sarah and Reverend Avery were both in attendance of the camp meeting in August of 1832. Sarah sought out Avery with the intention of asking him to destroy the letters she'd sent him with her confessions. He agreed, but on one condition. First, she'd have to have sex with him too, as she described she'd done with the other men in her letters. Sarah felt as if she had no choice. They have sex, and both of them return to the camp meeting. This was all related by Sarah's sister, who also testified that Sarah had been unwell as females are just eight days before the camp meeting, meaning that Sarah had had her period only eight days prior, confirming the conception did happen in that time frame at the camp meeting. After Sarah realizes she was pregnant, she moved closer to Avery and wrote him to inform him of her intentions of keeping the child and asking for his support. Avery instead encouraged her to try to end the pregnancy or discreetly have the child then give it away. Sarah said, no, I won't do that, and they left off agreeing to wait a little longer to be sure Sarah was actually pregnant. The pregnancy was confirmed for Sarah by a doctor. Sarah tells the doctor the father is Reverend Avery, but testimony from the actual doctor was not allowed in the court for some reason. Months go by and Sarah contacts Avery again and says she's definitely pregnant and they need to talk. They arrange a meeting for the evening of December 20th, the morning after which Sarah is found dead. Now, not allowing the testimony of the doctor was a blow for the prosecution, but also none of the letters referenced are signed, so they can't conclusively connect them back to Avery. Now, typewriters weren't invented yet, so if they attempted any sort of handwriting comparison, I couldn't find anything about it. But much was made about the type of stationery the letters were on. It was apparently a very distinct shade of pale pink, similar to something found in Avery's home. The prosecution portrayed the Methodist Church as a dangerous secret society that would stop at nothing to cover up their crimes. The defense, on the other hand, did their best to smear Sarah's character. They called her, quote, utterly abandoned, unprincipled, and prolificate. They brought in a number of witnesses that testified of her promiscuity, suicidal ideation, and mental instability. 
and they made much of her history of being cast out of the Methodist church. Avery denied speaking with Sarah at the camp meeting. He said he'd seen her there. He went so far as to remark to others that she ought not to be there, but he never spoke with her. He does confirm that he met with her in Fall River in October, but it was a chance meeting, and the only thing they discussed was Sarah's request for him to destroy her letters of confession. By way of an alibi for December 20th, he said he'd taken the ferry that day to Portsmouth, Rhode Island, gotten delayed, and missed the ferry back. It wasn't a very strong alibi, but several witnesses testified that they saw Reverend Avery there. Whether or not we believe them is another story. Now, by and large, public opinion was behind justice for Sarah. They wanted to see Avery suffer the consequences for what he'd done. But on June 2nd, 1833, after 16 hours of deliberation, the jury returned a verdict of not guilty and Reverend Avery was a free man. Despite his acquittal in a court of law, it was largely public opinion that justice had not been served. To quell the unrest, both within and outside of the Methodist community, the church held their own trial for Reverend Avery, where he was also found not guilty. Unsurprisingly, this rung pretty hollow with the public. Avery tried to return to preaching, but he was burned in effigy in the cities of Bristol, Newport, and Fall River. And in Lowell, they labeled coffins with his name and floated them down the river. Tavern songs were sung about the murderous Reverend Avery, and in New York, a play was developed with Avery as the villain. Anytime he was spotted in the streets, groups of protesters would gather to harass him. Now, instead of stepping out of the public view for a while, though, he doubled down and actually embarked on a speaking tour to try and clear his name. This did not go in his favor either, and by 1836, he ceased preaching altogether and moved out of the area with his family. He eventually relocated to Pittsfield, Ohio, where he lived out the rest of his days as a farmer and died on October 23, 1869, at the age of 70. He is also buried there in South Pittsfield Cemetery. Sarah is buried in the Oak Grove Cemetery in Fall River, Massachusetts, the same cemetery as our girl Lizzie Borden and her family. If you don't already know, I have a Victorian cemetery map on my website at agoodnightforamurder.com where you can find the burial locations of most of the subjects of the stories I tell here on the podcast. So far as Ms. Sarah Maria Cornell, I personally do believe she was murdered, and I think we need to believe women. Period. I think Reverend Avery got away with murder. But I'm interested to hear what you think. If you head over to Instagram or YouTube at A Good Night for a Murder, you can let me know there. You can see some photos of Reverend Avery and some interesting illustrations where the artists let people know exactly what they thought of Reverend Avery. You can also see the photos and source links on the episode blog on my website at agoodnightforamurder.com. While you're on the website, you can sign up for the Good Night for a Murder newsletter. Each month, I send an episode roundup, reveal of next month's episodes, and other goodies like extra Victorian society tips, book recommendations, and more. As I was writing the script, I'm realizing there has not been a July newsletter yet. My son was pretty sick at the end of June, and I could focus on nothing else. So if you were wondering where the July newsletter was, I apologize. My son is feeling much better now, and I'll probably get that newsletter out still, albeit a bit late. Thank you for your understanding. The bonus content for Housekeeper and Butler to your Patreons for this episode is the story of another member of the clergy in America who was charged with not only murder, but fornication and adultery that brought to light a potential second murder as well. Listen through the outro music to hear a short preview of this Patreon bonus content. To subscribe to Patreon and learn more about the podcast, you can visit agoodnightforamurder.com. Also follow me on Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube at agoodnightforamurder. Please rate and review and share with friends. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again soon.
to accompany episode 28 about Sarah Maria Cornell, I have the story of another murder investigation against a member of the clergy in America that predates the story of Reverend Avery. This is the story of Evan Jones. Evan Jones is best known for his Baptist missionary work with the Cherokee people from about 1821 to 1870. He was originally from Wales, but emigrated to the U.S. in 1821 with his wife, Elizabeth. Prior to emigrating, he was a Methodist, but upon arrival in Philadelphia, he converted to Baptist and was sent to North Carolina to live and work among the Cherokee people. He learned to read and write in the Cherokee language, translated religious texts, taught school, and preached. Between him and his son, who also took up missionary work, they're said to have, quote, converted more American Indians to Christianity than any other Protestant missionaries in America. That is not the flex I think that author intended it to be. No Native people of America asked for these missionaries, right? Right. It's said that Reverend Jones did do a lot of advocacy work, though, for the Cherokee people. For example, he vehemently opposed their removal from their ancestral lands in the southeast, known as the Trail of Tears. Many accounts do describe a mutual respect between Evan Jones and the Cherokee, but all of this history was written by white men. We know we're not getting the full story here. Let's move on to the murder investigation, which was the actual first account of a minister being charged with murder in the U.S. In about 1824, Jones relocated from Philadelphia to Valleytown, North Carolina, for missionary work with his wife, Elizabeth. Elizabeth died in February 1831, after which Jones married Pauline Cunningham. The date of their marriage is uncertain. In August of 1832, the couple welcomed a new baby. Two months later, in October of 1832, Pauline's sister Cynthia arrives at the mission, possibly to help with the new baby. Pauline and Cynthia also have another sister, Eliza, who volunteers at the mission as well. On January 7, 1833, Cynthia goes to bed with what she says is a very bad cold. She's also complaining of menstrual pain. Cynthia shares a cabin with another mission volunteer, Miss Sarah Rayner. Around midnight, Sarah hears Cynthia moaning and goes in to check on her. She gives Cynthia what I could only find described as herbal medicine, and she goes back to sleep.